The variable factor is trust. So we always have at different levels, even prior to AI, we have a trust deficit with the machine all the time. You and I drive a car and we have a GPS system and tells me to go from point A to point B in a certain route. And sometimes I think that I know better and I ignore it and I use my own intuition to do it. And almost 100% of the time I'm wrong. But there's, there's this, there is always that human notion that I know better than what the machine's telling me. And that translates into not just our personal life, but organizational life too. Hey there, it's Jenny Harold from Dreams with Deadlines. And I'm thrilled to introduce a new idea into our podcast series, The Future Of. In each episode, we'll dive into the fascinating world of tomorrow, exploring what lies ahead with leading experts from various fields. In this episode, I'm joined by AI expert Gary Bettacargi. We discuss the future of data and AI. We embark on an exhilarating journey into the world of generative AI and the evolving relationship between humans and machines. Gary provides invaluable insights into the cutting edge applications of generative AI and how it is reshaping economies of scale. Here are a few things we talked about. Embracing AutoGPT's revolutionary potential, navigating pitfalls, and how the wisdom economy's reliance on educators are key in unlocking the transformative power of generative AI. We'll wrap up with some quickfire questions to gain further insights into Gary's perspectives. Get ready to embark on a journey on the future of data and AI. Let's jump in. Really excited today because I have Gary Bettacargi on the show with me. He has a diverse set of skills and experiences in the fields of technology and business. Um, he's a VP for AI and data strategy at Infosys, correct? Um, and is responsible for overseeing the development and implementation of AI and data-related projects and initiatives and providing strategic guidance on how these technologies can be leveraged to drive business outcomes. As a forward thinker with so many years of experience, it's clear that Gary has a strong track record and continues to innovate and drive progress in his field. So thanks for being on the show today, Gary. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Jenny. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Seen some of the podcasts. This is really future thinking, thought provoking, and I'm honored to be in your podcast. All right. So you have said before, we're just going to hop right in, that digitization is now a fundamental business strategy and a necessary innovation, and that touchless business is more than a boardroom buzzword and more than, and now more of a survival reality. For those who are not familiar with this because they're not in boardrooms, what is touchless business? And why do you say that it is a survival reality for today? Digitization of businesses had started probably almost a decade ago, and it was a slow progress. And organizations were reticent to go to the cloud to be more digitized, to change the way they do things. And then COVID happened. And the people were forced into a corner to get to their customers, get to their employees in a way that is virtual. And that has moved the ball for a couple of years dramatically in the direction of virtual conversations and communications. That translates both into the way people do business, whether it's in the boardroom and or whether it's an organization or how an organization reaches out to its customers. So a touchless business has been thrust upon us. And people who haven't or the organizations that haven't 
gotten onto the bandwagon to digitize all their offerings, go to the market in a virtual way, reach their customers in a virtual way, create the future of work with employees logging in from remote are having problems. So the future is that's what is touchless business is. That makes sense. So obviously you're in the space of data, AI. When you're looking at this from a business perspective and we're talking about the total addressable market, what are we talking about here in terms of the TAM? There are various projections on how this market is expanding and there are some numbers we're looking at a tagger of 35%, 40% growth on AI market, which is gigantic. It's gigantic. People are uh, rediscovering AI and, and how it can drive business. I think in one of the estimates it's about $17 billion market in, in a couple of years. And this is just AI, but there is all these substantive businesses behind AI, like AI vision, AI generative AI, which is now just forming up, AI governance. And the, even the cloud market itself is at a very high CAGR rate, where all the people are putting more and more of their data and applications on the cloud. So these two markets, the data and AI market, go in tandem. And it also goes in tandem with people moving their data assets as well as their application assets onto the cloud. Let's talk about this then, because you've mentioned before that data and math is transforming from being a loss-leading asset to a revenue-driving asset in today's digital economy. What do you mean by this? Like, why do you think this is true? Data is a very important corporate asset, and corporations had realized that it was an important asset probably a couple of decades ago. Data has always been the organizational exhaust, right? You run the app and some data gets produced and some data guys go out and manage that data. So it's always been that bit, but probably a couple of decades ago when data warehousing and BI and all that thing came into being, people realized that if they can go mine the data, look into the data, find hidden and gems from that data, they can actually create competitive advantage on the data, which was great. Organizations that jumped onto that bank wagon did do pretty well. However, what happened over the last several decades, so a couple of decades or so, is the realization that data is a corporate asset was great, but the cost of managing that data skyrocketed. So there were things like data governance, data stewardship, uh, people spend billions of dollars trying to manage this data. Now, see, data is a very important asset, of course, and it drives competitive advantage for the business, but the businesses don't really sell that data directly, hmm. right? They the data always helps the business to sell something else or find a new opportunity. It's not a top-line asset for any business, hence it's a loss leader, right? So it is certainly gives them an advantage, but it doesn't sell by itself. It has to be sold within the context of something. So for example, I always look into, I come from financial services background, so I'm familiar with this thing called the Bloomberg Terminal. And Michael Bloomberg, who created the terminal several decades ago, um, at the end of the day, he's selling data, right? I, I use Bloomberg Terminal myself, and the amount of information that I get from the terminal is phenomenal, and that's why I use it. But he doesn't sell me the data. What he's selling me is the ease of using the terminal to do my trade, to communicate with my counterparties and my business partners and what have you. So the convenience of getting all of that is why I buy a terminal, because I can do everything in one terminal, right? Although 
the competitive advantage of that terminal is essentially all the information that Bloomberg gives me, but be that in news articles or the stock price or what have you, that helps me make the better trade. So the point here is symptomatic of what successful business is. The point here is that the terminal is the selling asset, but the data is a competitive advantage of that asset, which you sell. So hence, there is a loss leader that drives the Bloomberg terminal sales. So businesses need to think of the data as a component, a very important component of something else, which they sell. Right. And so how is it now changed as a result? Because you're using the example of Bloomberg Terminal. We know recently Bloomberg had revealed, and this is your area of expertise, the component of AI. So now there's this chat GPT, if you will, kind of equivalent generative AI married up with the terminal. How is this changing the way folks like yourself have approached trades? Because to me, this is remarkable. I'm not sure if other people have heard of Bloomberg Terminal having that new component, but can, maybe you can talk to us about that. The way that this economy is progressed over the last several decades, and I call it, we're talking about the data as an asset, right? So it's, I call it the data economy. So people use things in terms of the data economy and people have become very good at it. And eventually, like every other assets, it has become commoditized to a certain extent. Everybody has the data, everybody has the warehouse and the BI and data lakes and lake houses and what have you, to some extent or the other. And what has been happening probably for the last five to seven or eight years, there's this undercurrent of mathematics, right? Machine learning, data science, and now AI. So behind the data economy, what I see is what's growing to be a competitive advantage is what I call the math economy. The people who had data science and machine learning and those experts in their cadre have done well. There is still a big market for the math economy to catch on. Several months ago, ChatGPT, well, almost six, seven months ago, ChatGPT made a landfall and things have started to change dramatically again. And now I kind of trying to figure out a term for it, but I'm trying to call it the, it's probably not the best term, but the decision economy. Essentially what I'm trying to say is that you have the data and now you have the math to figure out what the data is, how do you leverage it? But now you're actually aggregating the decision-making capability to a machine. So the machine is not only just giving you data and insights, but actually making, doing the job that a human normally does. So we are entering into a space where there are scenarios where a machine can do a human job directly. The, the entire, our entire economy and our relationship with the machines have been built on the basis of a computer, right? So a human works with a computer, which is nothing but a giant calculator, right? With, uh, with some if-then-else logic. So it has some compute and logic. And we ask a question, it gives me same answers. Based upon the answers, a human makes a decision to, do a, to pursue a particular thing in the business, right? Now, those decisions that the humans are making, some of them, not all of them yet, well, some of them can be made by the machines and they can conduct a business. I was trying to figure out this maturity curve in terms of how data and math have come and changed our life. In my head, there are like three steps. The data and processes first started what I call the automation, which means that um, we do a particular business process with several steps, 
And now we automate it. We optimize those processes, and then we make a machine, give the machine some if then else logic, and it does that job based upon rules. And then a human doesn't have to be involved in some of the mundane tasks, some of the repetitive mundane tasks. A machine would be robotic process automation and Makes sense, right? Because we're accelerating that. So robotic process, automation, bots, predictive analytics, that sort of thing. Yeah, makes sense. Exactly. And then I think there is this space uh, of hybrid machine-human interaction, which is called autonomy. So there are certain parts, certain smaller decision-making things which uh, we abrogate to, to the machines. One of the examples is in managing data quality. So data quality is something which is typically managed by data governance organizations with data stewards sitting there making business rules, you know, uh, fixing data when it went wrong, they know the business and what have you. Now with machine learning, you can take away a lot of those tasks to, to the math itself, right? So the machine can understand the patterns of the data, automatically fix the data without a human intervention, right? Automatically create rules, right? And look at the data to, to fix the data as it is flowing through the data pipeline and what have you. Now, if you think about it, that's a huge operational expense, right? Now you're abrogating a lot of those you know, jobs to the machines to auto-fix things as it flows along. So that's the construct of the autonomy. Now, the thing to note here is that while a lot of the decision-making things are done by the machines, at the end of the day, when the data gets to use for a business use, there's still a steward or a data czar, somebody sitting on the end of the pipeline saying that this is good, this is bad. So the final liability of that particular data still resides for the human. But the internal decision-making processes are now being done by machines. So that's the second or the current level of interaction, what I call autonomy, right? So AI went from a classic AI, which is automation, RPA, and what have you, to autonomous engineering and autonomous operation. Like explainable AI, or maybe for people who are more familiar with it, if you have a, a car, like autopilot, for example, could be example of what you're doing in a car. We're there, and we see that out on the streets, for example, and in our businesses, for sure. Okay. Absolutely, and you bring up a good point about, about a, a self-driving car, right? So if you look at the Teslas that are out there, which is everywhere nowadays, you have these, uh, what you call level two autonomy. So that car is driving itself, it's slowing down, speeding up based on the car in front of it. It knows where the lanes are, so it stays within the lane. It, it changes lanes when it needs to you know, actually make it. There's some rules there saying that if the car is in front of you going slow, go to the left. So all of that stuff is there, right? However, there is still a human driver sitting behind the wheel who is responsible for every single thing, right? Yeah, we're not quite minority report level here yet. <laughs> right. Not yet. Look at it. That's very scary when we get that on. That's the autonomy, right? I think where we are going to with ChatGPT and large language models or generative AI at, at the new Pandora's box that has opened up is what I call the age of alliance. All right, so you go from autonomy to alliance where now you're actually abrogating an entire business function, mm. right? Not just little things, but the entire business functions to a, a machine counterpart. You asked me about Bloomberg trades and what have you, right? So I often wonder at one point in time, I was managing a trading desk and we had several traders and the thing what traders do, they scan the market, put, a, put out a price, make a market, 
talk and talk to their counterparties to see what's going on. The Dana life or trader, right? Now, if you think about it, a lot of that stuff can actually be done by a machine. Almost like it's probably like a Pareto rule, right? 80 percent of the time by a trader is spent on communicating through in a Bloomberg. There's called Bloomies or Bloomberg messaging, right? Where you communicate with other people to see what's going on, what kind of inventory the other person has, what kind of mark-to-market pricing you do. And these are all specific communications and conversations that go back and forth. And then based upon that, you look into analyze the market, analyze the news, uh, talk to your friends, place a trade and make a market. Now, that communication bit is very bespoke, right? It's, It's between two traders. But today, you can have those communications without a trader, right? You can have a conversation part between two different parties on a trade and make that trade, perhaps, right? There are obviously regulatory challenges and what have you. But you can imagine a way where you are abrogating quite a lot of that activity to your machine and treating the machine just as your partner. And at some point in time, I, I can envision that out of the 20 folks that were in the training teams, at least half of them or some of them would be a machine, right? Doing a particular trade, managing a particular asset class or a market or a, or a, or a client directly without human intervention. So that's what I, the, is the is probably the next frontier where we have to think about it and we think about this notion of alliance. The alliance, just out of curiosity. So I had an imagined a worldview where At some point, human beings would be managing other human beings and bots. Do you think that there is a future where bots are managing humans? Because I think you have a very interesting perspective on the outlook of AI. You mentioned briefly there. It's a little scary. What are your thoughts on what this alliance will entail? Probably a little far-fetched to think that the the bots will go out of hand and AI is going to come and rule the world at this particular point in time. There are still researches going on in terms of are there real intelligence that's coming out of AI or is this amplified human intelligence? So we get fascinated by LLMs or large language models and, and giant AI that we see at the moment. And it's amazing that they can crack a bar exam or LSAT and what have you. But there is a science behind it and it is understandable and it's explainable. It is, yes, looking at trillions of tokens, on, got trained in trillions of tokens, and as creating one token after the other, which makes sense. And we as human, when we, when I ask a question to ChatGPT, we get an answer, and we feel that that answer is right. There's an experiment which was done 50 plus years ago, I think probably 40, 50 years ago, and this is construct called ELISA effect. Right in the 1960s, this just ChatGPT kind of construct was created in a very rule-based way, and computer scientists created this program where you ask us some question, and the machine would give you a canned answer. Okay. What is the meaning of life? There's a great answer to it. So there is a whole set of thing which was created, and machine would give you a grand answer. Now, what was the experiment was that when a human was interacting with the machine, knows that it's interacting with the machine. But after several conversations, when the machine was going back and forth, uh, the humans thought that the machine was a human. So there is a, a notion, a psychological thing for all humans to personify any inanimate object, right? This is why we personify pets, for example. So 
that notion is that even though you know in your head that there is a, there is it's actually a machine talking to you, you try to ask them questions which are very personal sometimes. Because you forget, you try to personify an inanimate object and that's comes from deep psyche within a human being. So the point is when you get to, in today's world, when chat GPT is in play, which is that knowledge base which was there in the 60s was very, very minute. Now you have the world at your fingertips. So you start to create a human and you know, a persona to that. And it's not about how he, machines can will treat humans, it's how humans would personify a machine, which would perhaps change some of the game. We will trust a machine more than a human, and that becomes interesting and maybe perhaps sometimes scarier because you can very easily manipulate that trust to a certain extent and needs a lot of governance to figure out how to manage that. We're going to take a short break. You are listening to Dreams with Deadlines, the podcast that brings you real stories of trials and victories in business, brought to you by Quantiv. Quantive is a strategy execution platform that helps organizations create greater strategic agility and excel at execution. With more than 2,000 customers, Quantive helps companies close the gap between strategy and execution to achieve their best possible. And now, back to the show. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I feel like we can learn so much from watching old sci-fi films. <laughs> <laughs> but that's for a whole different podcast, but absolutely. <laughs> so we're, we're at a point now where we're talking about uh, generative AI quite a bit these days. It's interesting, too, because there's like auto GPT that I heard recently exposed, right? Where large language models can basically be linked together to resolve an issue for a human. And it'll keep cranking on a problem till it gets there. Perhaps you can talk through some of the cutting edge things that you've seen in terms of application of generative AI these days, and and perhaps even like how generative AI is really changing the game on economies of scale, because I think this is where it gets pretty dang fascinating. Perhaps you can touch on those two topics. Certainly. Let me start on the first one in terms of the AutoGPT. And interestingly, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I started writing some code myself, and I just did an experiment and was with uh, the hypothesis I had is, do I need lawyers? Because I was having some challenges with the, some legal counter, and like, can I get ChatGPT to do my lawyer? So here's a very simple experiment which I did. And most of the legal contracts, you have a limitation of liability clause. You can create a certain prompt, and it's called prompt engineering, and ask GPT to create a LOL, a limitation reliability clause. So I created this recursive loop, right? So I went in there and said, okay, here are the two GPT, GPT-1 and GPT-2. I asked GPT-1, based upon certain prompt and which is parameterized, give me a limitation reliability clause. And it gave me a clause. Then I took that clause and I created a new prompt for GPT-2 and said, redline it based upon your parameters, right? And it gave me another limitation of liability cause, which was based upon the original one, but changed essentially the red line version. And I went back and forth. I put it back to the GPT-1 and GPT-2 and created a recursive loop, very simple recursive loop for it. And the loop, I had a while loop, so the loop exited 
Because what, there is a thing called perplexity score where you can compare two different things to figure out how close they are from a conceptual standpoint. So I calculated that for between these two outputs, and when it exceeded, a, I think, went below 40% of some random threshold number, I exited out of the loop. So guess what? I got a, let's say, a negotiated limitation of liability clause at the end of the day. So theoretically speaking, I don't need these two lawyers. It was an experiment. Again, office, I mean, real lawyers will come in and they'll still find some problems with that. But um, there is a construct, perhaps, when you can have these kind of actions that go back and forth, amplified and done much, much quickly. So you can think of a lot of use cases and business functions, things like that. We can start to replace this human interaction at the basic level. That's where AI is going to transform the way we do business. But to answer your second question, how does organization scale with this kind of thing? So with Gen AI, there has been a business school studies from the 1970s, Robert Duncan, about what they call organizational ambiguity or structural ambiguity. Meaning all organizations have these two personas, right? So there is the what's called exploration and exploitation. There's innovation and people try to create new stuff. And then the operational aspect of it, which explodes it. Essentially, organizations always have this right brain and left brain, right? And then there is always this tension between the right brain and the left brain. And there are probably hundreds of business school articles and case studies written on how to deal with this organizational ambidexterity. Right. And that you need to do both at the end of the day is the answer if you're curious. Yes. Exactly. You have to do both. In some way or the fashion, right? You, have, you can do it contextual or individualized or at organization level. There's papers and Harvard Business School studies and what have you to do that now. So what Gen AI does, I think, is when you have this left brain, right brain conflict where you know your right brain creates an idea and by the time it gets to the left brain, it's stale because of all kinds of operational issues and things of that nature. However, I think with Gen AI, now you are driving right through that cliff, right through that tension, right? And making sure that the right brain and the left brain are now working together. So what I mean by this is, let's take certain examples, right? Let's say there is a marketing and a genius who knows how to market. And they come with an idea on which demographic and which campaigns to do. And they create that requirement, and that goes into some other analyst who analyzes the requirement that creates some techniques, which goes to the IT guys who will create the campaign, and then you measure it, and so on and so forth, right? However, if the person who has created the idea can give it to the IT guy, can create the first draft, what we call first draft of the production system by working with the chat GPT, what you're giving to the technology people is almost a fully formed product which is a reflection of your idea, which is already there, and all the technology folks has to do is to scale it down and make sure that they're you know, conforming to the technology standards, right? So you can think of a lot of scenarios like this, right, where the right brain takes leadership and implements their ideas and thought processes without going through these internal processes and techniques where most of these ideas get lost, right? or people call it the organizational antibodies that devour all these ideas by the time it gets implemented. Or right, there's all these towns. Or organizational headwinds, whatever you want to call it. But these things that keep you from being able to produce 
whatever it is that is in support of that idea, for sure. So that structural ambidexterity, which is inherent in all this organization, with a Gen AI platform, you break that barrier. And when you break that barrier, it just unleashes and amplifies innovation and accelerates innovations and creates new market, creates new business ideas and changes the world. Right, so that's what I get excited with Gen AI is, is that how can you take that and disrupt a business model, disrupt the industry, fracture and fragment what we have come to known as the best practices and what have you. So that's how we can amplify it. I guess if we were to add to that thought beyond that, or instead of saying, but I'm going to say, and we're giving it to everyone. Yes. So there has, there was a term that was popularized several years ago called citizen data scientists, right? So everybody is a data scientist. They can, you give the tools to them. You take that one step further, right? So let's look at going back to marketing again, right? Um, the um, campaigns, so people create art, you know, brands and things which goes out and creates uh, ad campaigns. So there are hundreds of artists who are really creative and creating those art. But today, you can certainly create some of them without the artists themselves. There was a 60-minute special that Sundar Pichai from Google's CEO, and he did it, I think last week when part of the segment he was talking about text to image and text to video and they were showing some demonstrations on how they created pink caps in new york city and uh, in a flying dog and what have you right all by writing some text and the ai behind it would do that now it it looked a little hokey yes it wasn't there yet but the power of doing that now is is amazing so what happens to this artist who is sitting there and, and creating creative art their livelihood might get challenged. There's another way to look at it, right? Another way to look at it is what an artist produce at the end of the day is innovative and creative and, and soulful. When they create hundreds of copies of it, try to create a community where they can sell their art, that becomes repetitive to a certain extent. What generative AI can perhaps do is not destroy the core creativity of the artist, but just amplify it. And it will allow the artist not only to create art and sell it to the community they know, now they can amplify and sell it throughout the world. And because they can create art at scale, but they will not lose their creativity because they're just teaching the generative AI model to build the art in the way they want it to. And they can instruct it based upon text. All right, so these things, if you think about it, it's on the one hand, it, it, it might challenge the way you do things. On the other hand, if you really leverage it, uh, it will amplify good art or good innovation. You make it seem like everything is going to be not Pollyanna-ish, I don't think. I don't think you're trying to claim that. Maybe we can talk about some pitfalls here. Let's talk about where generative or gen AI becomes tricky. Where are those restrictions? What should we be aware of pitfall-wise and why? Maybe we can start with the first one. How does generative AI get tricky? So it's easy to see the glass half empty. We can always think of Terminator coming back to kill us. Start there. But, so yes, there are things that need to be thought about, and there's a lot of things. So the... 
one of the things with AI is you have to train an AI. You have to train an AI model, right? Whether it's new, and then whatever gets trained in, uh, it would then amplify it and create new content, new ideas, and new art, and new everything, right? So the training is very important, and governing what's coming out of the AI models and all of that is becomes important. That poses a different thought process, and I'll, I'll, I'll which. I'll, I'll address the specific pitfalls of AI in a bit, but as we were talking about the structural ambidexterity, right? There's another thing to posit, right? Is what I call machine ambiguity. So here's the hypothesis, right? We have dealt with machines as it it was no no at all. I ask a question, I get an answer. Going back to that calculator thing, right? As a computer, as a calculator, you ask something, it gives you a definitive answer. And you take that answer and do whatever you want to or want with it. So that's what I call the dot-com model. We have amplified that quite a bit. What we have to now deal with is that if I ask the same question to the machine five times, same exact question, it'll give me five different answers. So it creates an ambiguous answer, right? Which is okay because when I ask a human the same question five times, I do get five different answers or I might get five different answers for five different humans, and we deal with it. However, our best practices, our business processes, or, or how an organization deals with machine have been geared towards thinking of the machines being a perfect entity. If I ask an answer, it'll give me a perfect answer. And the humans will then do the bespoke things for that. And, and if you look at the B-School best practices, all are based upon that particular fundamental notion the machine will give you the one answer. No matter how many times you ask the machine, it'll give you the same answer. We're changing that paradigm completely. So all those best practices that we have in the government, whether it's governance and processes and what have you, all of them go out of the window. Because now we have to treat the machines like a human, right? There'll be, I'll get a bespoke answer every time, even if I ask the same question many times. And it will be dependent on the context and the construct of that particular uh, activity. So this is what I call the machine ambiguity, right? Which which goes back to this alliance construct. Now we are treating the machines like a, a ally. So that means that we have to create new guardrails, new structures and governance and what have you to the machine. So let's break it down into what are the pitfalls and what are the headwinds and what how do we need to fix that? So one of the things is that first of all we have to train the machine in a way that they, it understands our organizational construct so today we have gpt which is essentially this one mega mind centrally created trained by the web we ask a question we get the same answer terrifying terrifying gary it is a mega mind <laughs> there are bad actors out there these things terrify me but keep going but then if you want to customize it to your organization, take that mega mind, then you teach it things that your organization can do. So you can take that idea and then construct more specific ideas and questions. A proprietary version of it, effectively. A proprietary or gated version of it. You create this mega mind, but they all get taught by the mega mind, which is out there, right? Right. So we're forking it and we're going to do stuff with it. We're going to port and do stuff. We're going to train it. And so there are new transformer models out there which can scale out and what have you to do that, right? Right. 
But one of the other things is, which has also started, as you probably know, is, is trying to figure out what's human generated and what's AI generated. So how do you identify fake and what have you? So there are, that's one of the pitfalls to figure out what has been generated by a machine and what has been generated by a human. Watermarking. No, just kidding. Maybe. I don't know. So there are a couple of things out there. Then I take a step back and think of it a little bit more philosophically. How does it matter whether it's created by a human or a machine? Because it probably when I create new content, I plagiarize too. I look at things, I get influenced by other things, and then I can I don't technically copy and paste, but I probably copy and paste some of the ideas anyway. And I create my own content. So if the machine is doing that in the right way, then that's okay. But what's not okay is it doesn't create what I call the lineage of knowledge. So when I write a paper, you know, I have five pages of citations I borrow from this work and I borrowed from that work and so on and so forth, right? Today, GPT doesn't tell you when it gives the answer where it got that answer from or how did it learn, right? So we need to have that kind of governance in play, right? So please, it has to give you the lineage of knowledge. The second part where it can go wrong is the ethics part of it, of course, right? You teach a machine good things, it will do good things. You teach a machine bad things, it will do bad things. So who governs that? Who governs the ethics, right? Is it, uh, can it be, should it be done through uh, bills and laws or legal constructs? Should it be done through societal construct? That becomes a very complex question to ask, right? And the new world order for machine driving conclusions have yet to be sorted out. But that certainly is a debatable thing. What is ethics? And where does it originate from? Does it originate from society, uh, government, religion, what have you, right? So where, how do you codify it? How do you do that? So that should, that's a challenge. So unless we figure that one out in a more constructive way, we won't be able to control some of the good stuff or the bad stuff of the machine. And then you also, right, so while we have this tool, this tool in a way, it's probably not the right analogy, but it's like nuclear technology in a way. You can use it for good stuff or you can use it for bad stuff. And how do you responsibly use it? It's something that people have to come together across the globe, right? And then and figure out how to do it. What are the guardrails for it? How do you weed out the bad actors? How do you weed out bad training? and you promote good training, then somebody will ask, what's the good training versus the bad training? It's, 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 there, there are debates that need to get asked and, and have, and some world order for AI needs to be sorted out. You know, I spoke to spoke science fiction, so Asimov's three rules of robotics or four rules of robotics. Eventually, those kind of commandments have to be sorted out, right? Um, he started it, but now it's real. Now, with some of those commandments and Bill of Rights, essentially, need to be sorted out to figure out what are the guardrails where these things can thrive. I think it's totally possible, though. The two things that give me hope is the fact that we have Wikipedia, that's something that is effectively crowdsourced, and the standards for the internet, which if you're saying a computer is just a glorified calculator, I would say that the internet is a, a glorified copy machine. But we've developed standards. Uh, but the question is, who gets to create them? Who is that body? And to what extent are we going to create the rule set? How often should they get updated? I think that lends itself to this idea that you've told me before about 
really the future skills that we're going to need are going to come from educators because the wisdom economy is here. And in as much as it's important for us to have access to these accelerants, because effectively that's what generative AI is to everyone, it's an accelerant in different ways. We need wisdom. Maybe you can talk about that for a moment, because I know we're straying into the things to watch out for in terms of pitfalls, but can you share a bit about this idea, this notion you have of the wisdom economy and how important it is for us um, to pay attention to this idea of wisdom and its incorporation as we're starting to get into a territory where explainable AI is probably going to go away. We're not going to actually understand how AI got to a certain result or an answer. So the notion that I was talking about before early in the podcast about the data economy and the math economy and the decision economy, right? As we go through those journeys, all of them will get commoditized. All data is already commoditized. Math is commoditized. Anybody can do a very simple math, very complex math in a very simple way. Decisions will get commoditized with the autonomous economy and what have you. So the thing that makes an organization better than another organization, a company better than another company, is the tribal knowledge. Is the knowledge that the employees have and the reason they are better than the other set of employees. So these things, to give it the right answer, whether it's this mega mind called the GPT, or whether it's the smaller minds in, in organizations with uh, transformer models, somebody's got to teach these machines the way of life the way of business, right? So these are fundamental teachings, which we all learned in school, middle school, high school, and what have you. In fact, she'll probably use stuff I learned in middle school and high school. Um, most of my education came from that, but, um, but they're fundamental. We all, we, as we grow up in life, we just amplify our K to 12 education and then we amplify and go deeper and deeper into it. But those foundational educational patterns will need to get taught to the machine. So today, for example, if you take the GPT model, it got trained and by trillion tokens out of the web. And there was some notion of reinforcement learning to make sure that it learns the, the right stuff and not the wrong stuff. But it's very, very little. So the job of the future would be of a high school teacher. And that would be the most important job not the computer scientists, not the math geniuses. Most of them can be automatically done. The math that we use today with neural nets and what have you, they were invented 50, more than 50, 60 years ago. We just have the scale to do that now. So those innovations are more or less stabilized. So the thing that will make an organization or a country or a community better than another community would be how you teach the machine. So the best teachers, will get the most pay. So if they, if, 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 what I envision down the road is the educators are the most valuable asset that we have in humanity, to be honest. And if we can use that valuable asset to teach the machines, which will amplify business and our lifestyle as we go along, we'll be in a good place. I sure do hope you're right. So how then, and maybe will We'll end here and then we'll roll into the quick fire questions. How do you build a strong alliance between humans 
and machines. Having gone now with this arc of AI from making things autonomous to where we are headed, which is alliances between man and machine and arguably these LLMs and so on. The variable factor is trust, right? So we always have at different levels and on even today without even AI, right? Even prior to AI, we have a trust deficit with the machine all the time. You and I drive a car and we have a GPS system and tells me to go from point A to point B in a certain route. And sometimes I think that I know better and I ignore it and I use my own intuition to do it. And almost 100% of the time I'm wrong. But there's, there's this, there is always that human notion that I know better than what the machine's telling me. And that translates into not just our personal life, but organizational life too. A financial advisor might get a notion from a machine that they have to allocate a particular portfolio in a particular way. But the financial advisor with 40 years of experience might think that the machine is wrong and they would do it the way they know how to do it. And sometimes they get it wrong. So these are just countless of examples when human to machine trust is not translated. Now with machines actually making decisions and creating an alliance with the humans, this now gets into multiplier or mega multiplier in terms of the trust deficit that exists within a human and a machine. Before you were ignoring some of the decisions or the insights that the humans was giving you because you are still in control. Now you are abrogating the control completely to the machine if you really want to use it the right way. So you have to have a really high leap of faith for the machine, for example, to do a trade on your behalf. So it is scary, but so the human computer interface or the human robot interface, HRI or HCI, is transforming drastically in terms of that alliance. And it's a change management issue in organization, right? It's a, a change management issue in our own personal life. I drive an autonomous vehicle at the moment, and it took me a couple of years to go on to what they call the FSD or full self-driving mode. Leave my hands, leave my foot off the gas, and let the car speed up and drive and change directions, recognize traffic lights, and don't kill anybody. Let it go. But for the most part, it did the right thing. Was I scared? Absolutely. I probably had more stress trying to get the car drive me from point A to point B than actually driving it myself. But eventually that those friction between human and machine will become normal. And just like anything else in technology, we normalize technology in our life as it becomes more and more mature and becomes more definitive. So those things will go away. The thing we all have to understand and reduce is the trust deficit that exists between humans and AI. And sooner we can do that on both angles for creating better AI decisions and better human trust, more successful we will be organizationally or from a business standpoint or from a personal standpoint. Well, thank you for that fascinating perspective. I think the one thing I am always curious about is the legal ramifications of absolving humans to some degree to the decisions and allowing a machine to do it on our behalf. Like who owns ultimately the decision and the responsibility and accountability for that decision if they're to make actions on behalf of the human. That's, I feel like, a whole podcast in itself. So I will leave that <laughs> for the listeners to be thinking about in future. Maybe you can go into quick fire questions now if that's okay. No, absolutely. Sure. So the name of the podcast is Dreams with Deadlines. 
I'm always curious about folks who join the show. Do you have a dream with a deadline or maybe even without a deadline? And if yes, what is it? It's sticking with the theme with what we are talking about today with AI. A dream with a deadline would certainly be more machines and things around me that can do my job, right? So that I can be like the Jetsons way back in the past. <laughs> Sit back and get the machines to make food for me, drive me around, do my professional job, things of that nature. Yeah, sure. We all want Rosie apparently in our lives. And hopefully though, I, I like food, so I don't know if I want to eat the, the pills or whatever that they eat for, for their diets. But yes, I remember this fondly. Okay, question two. Uh, you've mentioned quite a bit about generative AI. What are you most excited about in terms of some of this bleeding edge technology? The scale on which we can operate on training a machine and getting some exciting responses for that. The acceleration of the innovation, the machine to not only just machine to human conversation, but machine to machine conversation, which creates a new dimension to this innovation is exciting. On the back of it, and this probably for another podcast, the hardware and the technology that is driving some of this scale is GPU and quantum, quantum computing and quantum hardware, which opens up a whole new set of opportunities on how uh, you can scale the neural nets and what have you. That would also, the, some of the network problems that we deal with, what we call NP-hard problems at the moment, which are a little complex in, in, this, uh, in this AI world, could now be done in real time and right time and could become a reality, which will open up the cognitive nature of these machines closer and closer to humans. So yes, that excites me tremendously in terms of the space of innovations on the hardware side and things that we can do and at scale with this amazing tech. Today, what is the most exciting application of AI that you have seen personally? Oh, I see one new every day. It's just there are so many use cases and business cases which are popping up day in and day out. We mentioned a few of it in the podcast with the AI artist or the, um, the lawyer or the trader. So one thing I think about, and this is something which our founder, Emphasis founder, Nandan had once said in, in a thing, he had challenged all us leaders to think of a AI twin. He was saying, he told us that all of your jobs need to be replaced by AI twin. So think of the world that way, including the CEO's job. So now, obviously it's a thought experiment, but it's a great way to think about it and say, hey, what things that I do, I'm an AI strategist and consultant, I write math and I consult with folks. Can my job be done by an AI? Perhaps there's quite a few things that I do maybe done by a, a generative AI. So if you start thinking of it that particular way, the AI twin, that's the way I think about it. Since you talk and are a subject matter expert, arguably for this subject, who do you follow or what do you read? What would you recommend to read in this space? Maybe there's a few sub stacks out there. I doubt that there are books that are written at this point. Maybe they are because they were written by the help of Alliance with ChatGPT. I don't know. But what are you reading these days to help you stay on the cutting edge? Oh, science fiction and health. <laughs> Actually, it does, because the things that those guys have written, the narratives they have written in, in terms of imagining a world, a lot of those imagination are reality. 
right? So if you follow some of those thought processes and see how those utopian world that was written by people 40, 50, 60 years ago uh, can be made a reality, um, you can start to think of how they can apply itself, right? So I, re I reread some of them to a certain extent, to be honest. And the other bit that excites me is the, the psychology of it. So the human to machine interaction is also very psyche driven, like the Eliza effect I was talking about. So books that are written on organizational psychology or organizational ambidexterity, as we were talking about, they are all very re relevant today to deal with that. Other than that, like math books and data books, there are dime a dozen, there's tons of them out there. And like you said, you can chat GPT any question and get an answer. So you probably don't have to read much of those. But I think the organizational constructs excite me. The imagination constructs of the sci-fi world and narratives excite me because there is a direct connection between some of those narratives and what we can do today. And to make some of this fiction a fact and reality is it's exciting to make it happen with the tools that we have today in our disposal. Absolutely. I remember growing up with Star Trek The Next Generation, and now we effectively have what they had handing out Kindles and basically tablets around with information. So that obviously was materialized. Very cool. If there's one thing I would want from there is beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. Last question. What would you say is the book, or maybe there's a few, that largely shape the way that you think? Huh, there's not a single book. It's a hard one to answer because there's a lot of different things that I read at different points in life. And right now, for example, I'm rereading it, some of these things. We're reading two interesting books, well, actually three books probably. One is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, part one. Uh, it's probably my third time reading it, but it's just, there's a tremendous amount of profoundness and, and philosophy in there, and, which can be applied. The other one I'm reading is Innovator's Dilemma, by Clayton Jensen, and another, again, constructive book, and an old book, but it's quite relevant. The other one I read is Catch-22. So the, the juxtaposition of this logic, logical paradox that that book has, if you read it in different ways, you can get different interpretation, interpretations of that book, obviously. But uh, the logical paradox is, is a human condition, which is also a machine condition nowadays. Those are the three things that I'm in parallel reading. <laughs> but most of the time rereading it is just I read these things in a different context as I learn more and, and put them into some of these things they live on forever, see these books. So. Yeah, definitely oldies but goodies. Thank you so much. And really appreciate you being on our show today, Gary. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jenny. It was uh, great talking to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, then we invite you to join the Dreams with Deadlines community. Dreams with Deadlines is a global network of ambitious business leaders and innovators who are passionate about using OKRs and agile practices to build high-performing cultures, achieve bold goals, and influence our world for the better. Learn more and join us at dwd.community.